loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Heather Plett. Heather's the author of the book, The Art of Holding Space, A Practice of Love, Liberation, and Leadership, and the co-founder of the International Center for Holding Space. She's an international speaker, facilitator, and writer whose work has been translated into a dozen languages and quoted in such notable publications as Harvard Business Review. She's trained people from six continents, both in person and online. Welcome, Heather. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, it's great to have you here. And I, I just said to my wife before I came to do the show, well, how fortunate that I'm that today, and I'll, I'll say what today is in a minute, uh, I'm with someone who's an expert in holding space because <laughs> today is the day that um, the Capitol in Washington, D.C. has been stormed. And yes. so uh, I know you're Canadian. I assume you're in Canada yes. today. But um, I'm sure you know about that. <laughs> yes, yes, I, I... I am in Canada, but many of my closest friends are Americans. And of course, we are highly impacted by what happens in your country. So it is very present for me as well. And it feels really quite um, quite a moment in history to be, like you say, in this conversation right now. And And in a way, I feel as if the principles of your book, which we will talk about, and we may not be able to entirely separate them from what's happening. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, they're about the antidote to the kind of reactionary energy yes. that results in a time like this. You know, how do we sit with difference? How do we respect each other? Um, how do we remain civil when our, our amygdalas are shooting off? Yes. <laughs> Do you, do, yeah. do you feel the same? Uh, I yes, mean I, I absolutely do. I feel like if we, um, there are moments when I just, I want to start elementary school programs. I'm, I'm not, I don't work with children a lot, but there are moments when I think, oh, I want to get this stuff into schools because if everybody had some of these tools and skills and understandings of their own emotional um, reactivity, et cetera, then they, these things would happen less frequently in the world. We would have capacities for, like you say, being with difference and being in the complexity without um, this kind of, yeah, high emotion taking over. And uh, my little grandsons, my granddaughter's too young for school right now, but they're in a school that does do that, but it's really expensive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. to me, they would have gotten that message from their parents and grandparents regardless, but um, m most little children are not getting that kind of training in how to be in a human community. 
Yeah. Um, and ex except in, you know, in the, the play yard, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And there are many reasons for that. And one of the reasons you point out is, is poverty and trauma and those people that don't have access to this kind of work or training or just are just purely in survival mode, just trying to, you know, survive in a really challenging world. So, yeah, I, I, I would love to, maybe I need to start applying for some funding, some foundational funding or something like that to begin working with everyone, you know, with with broader audiences, because it just does feel like we all need capacities and the world is getting more and more complex. And especially in the, in the middle of a pandemic, it just feels like we need so much more um, opportunity for learning about how to be in complicated relationships with each other and and to sit with this discomfort and anger and fear and all of the challenge that's coming up and just because i know um i would hear from people i want to say that there are programs in public schools and in um marginalized communities that do exactly this and right. i've interviewed people that do it i i've got uh, young teachers in my family that do it, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. uh, it's not, it's not a cause and effect entirely, but, but I agree that, you know, uh, most of us had to learn really how to do this as adults in circles and therapy and, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, it, it's, it's certainly, um, more likely that some crisis happens in our lives that sort of forces us to learn these things, yes? Yes, often I think that's the case and that there is um, some skills. I was just having a conversation with one of my daughters earlier today and uh, she's been wrestling with some pretty big things this year and um, I, I recognize some of that as, as a function of her evolution as a young person, that there are things that um, that we simply can't learn yet until we've gone through some of the crisis, some of the um, perhaps trauma or whatever it is, some of that grief, some of the loss that uh, that teaches us, that becomes our greatest teacher and helps us evolve and, and grow these skills. It's like a muscle that we have to grow as we as we find ourselves in more and more complex um, situations and, mm. and relationships. And so circling back to you and your book, I, I want to have you share uh, your maybe most dramatic, you know, my most dramatic entrance into how to keep myself calm in very challenging circumstance was when my wife was ill for a very long time, led to this work, right? But for you, um, I wonder if you'd share the part of the book about what what made that, uh, what broke through for you in a sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think my most significant awakening, and I think this is what you're referring to, because there's kind of a few different points where it were, that were kind of milestones of my life. But <laughs> the first time that I really became aware that I needed something different and I needed some new skills about a new uh, view, a worldview, a new perspective on the world. And that was really when, I found myself in my third pregnancy, I'd landed in a hospital bed because my pregnancy was suddenly in crisis and spent three weeks in a hospital bed because they tried to do a, um, a surgery 
to protect the pregnancy and that surgery failed. And so my pregnancy was in high crisis. And in the end, I had a, a stillborn, stillborn son at the end of those three weeks. Um, and that just opened up a whole lot of awareness in me that A, I needed to have a deeper understanding of how to go through grief. Uh, B, I, I just really realized that my spiritual path needed to deepen, that I, I needed the practices and skills that would sustain me. And and see, the world just looked a lot more um, gray. Like, there were a lot more gray zones. It, it just mm -hmm. didn't look as black and white anymore. It was a real disruption that helped me see the complexity of the world and, and the journey I was on. And it ended up, uh, I, I often say my son, even though he never lived, he was one of my greatest teachers because he cracked open this work for me that eventually led me to where I am now, where I've written the book. Would you read that part of the book that, um, that we're kind of talking about? Sure, I, would, I can do that. My most significant period of liminal space came after I lost my stillborn son. Before that time, I had a stable, rather predictable life. I had a good job and was rising through the ranks of the federal government on track to eventually reach the highest levels of public service as an executive director. I had two young children, a house in the suburbs, a church community, and a trailer that we parked by the lake each summer. I had all the things that feel solid and comfortable. I was in the caterpillar on the ground portion of life and just as an aside, uh, that's a reference to the liminal space journey that I define as the caterpillar turning into the butterfly. Hmm. But then my life was thrown into chaos when my third pregnancy was suddenly at risk. I had to spend three weeks in the hospital trying to prolong it so that my child would have a better chance of survival. During that time in the hospital, my faith and everything I believed in underwent dramatic and irreversible change. I emerged three weeks later with no baby and a huge question mark where my belief system had once been. Those three weeks were hard, but they taught me so much about surrender, trust, and stillness. And in that time, I was offered a hint of a different kind of life, a life based on open-heartedness and purpose. Though I didn't call it that at the time, it was in my hospital room that I first became a life coach and spiritual guide. I sat and listened to people in a different way than I had ever done before. And while I was listening, I was learning to hold space. I spent the next 10 years trying to find solid ground again, trying to find the life's purpose that I'd glimpsed in the hospital. I left the government and took a nonprofit job that sent me to some of the poorest parts of the world. I began exploring different spiritual teachings and discovered the labyrinth, meditation, mandalas, and the circle way. I eventually left the church that had once sustained me and at the end of those 10 years finally walked away from the marriage that hadn't evolved enough to fit into the new paradigm in which I was now living. I lost relationships, left communities, spent a great deal of time in loneliness. It was painful and chaotic and scary. But once I started down the path, I knew I couldn't go back. And something that was both deep inside and far ahead of me kept telling me it would all be worth it. There are so many different parts of that that we might spend an entire hour working on and mm -hmm. talking about. <laughs> but um, 
that I, I'm, I'm uh, always, uh, my commitment with this show, let me start there, is that we not skip the part where um, these loss experiences, these challenge experiences, we not skip the part where they're very difficult. Right. And so when you say, you know, the next 10 years, I feel that's just crucially important to emphasize that that you have to kind of know you have a direction, but you but you don't know when it's going to arrive. Yes. Yeah. And that's I, I teach a lot about this concept of the liminal space and limin is a, a anthropological term that's the space in between and and I use the butterfly analogy the chrysalis stage where you have totally deconstructed and no longer resemble the caterpillar but you're not yet the butterfly and that can be a long period like I say that was 10 years for me where I just felt kind of lost and the ground didn't feel as stable as it once did and and you're right I don't ever underestimate that stage and and the challenge of this work is to help people find some um, acceptance of that stage to just really be present with it and and see that uh, it is a journey through something that that has meaning that has purpose but it, it's not necessarily clear or visible when you're in the middle of it. The other thing that really stood out in your book that that I think does connect with this is the idea that having being held in space, uh, having holding spaces in your life, um, where you can be, can begin exactly where you are, mm -hmm. is what actually propels you forward. Not, not what people tell you you should do. Not, you know, not advice. Not admonition. Um, it's being held in, where you are. Yeah, exactly. It's, it, I mean, sometimes I use gardening analogies. I'm not really a gardener, but I have good friends that are. And, and it's really, when you think about that seed that's going to eventually grow, there isn't much, once you put it into the ground, other than giving it water and, you know, and you kind of just have to wait for it to evolve and emerge and to begin to sprout. And similarly, when people are going through a transition, a liminal space, they're, they're really, they don't need a lot of outside input. I mean, sometimes they might need a bit of gentle guidance or something. And I, I talk about selective guidance, uh, but mostly they just need the space to germinate or the space to be or the space for that transition to happen. Um, and, and that's what holding space is about, is allowing that in each other and in ourselves not trying to rush the process, not trying to develop, you know, the right strategic plan or even <laughs> the right New Year's resolutions. We've just been through the New Year's Eve and so many people want to kind of rush through by if I just plan the right things for the year, maybe I can kind of control the narrative. Um, but holding space is about allowing and not um, directing. You know, you just brought up a gardening image. I can't tell you how many times I've used that image in therapy work with people. And one thing that's um, a little to the side of what you're what you're saying, because it does involve kind of uh, help in changing something, is that you you don't want to dig up the seed. 
And you don't want to think the new shoot is so small, you ought to stamp it out. You know, (laughs) I think a lot of what happens in therapy with people is actually not trusting themselves um, to just to just go forward. (laughs) So I find I spend a lot of time supporting the person to trust themselves. That's Um, a really big one. And that's what I say, trust. I've developed this imagery of being the bowl and supporting other people. And we can maybe go into that a little bit later. But um, what's woven through the bowl and kind of gives it its strength when we support other people is, is trust as kind of the glue. Like if we don't have trust in the person we're holding space for, if they don't trust themselves, if they don't trust us to hold space for them, then it's not a process that works or functions for anybody. But that learning to trust yourself is is critical. And I find you're right that there are so many people that I work with that have to go through that journey first. It's interesting too, because uh, as with you, I have some children and uh, over the time, they're all, they're all grown now, but over the time of raising them, I realized that possibly the most important thing that I had to offer was faith that they would grow. (laughs) (laughs) You you were kind of referring to that with your daughter, like to look at these things that they go through and say, yeah, I remember going through that stuff. They'll, they'll, they'll grow. You know, I have faith in their capacities and it's hard sometimes as a parent, isn't it? Absolutely. And, And it's not only faith that they will grow, but faith that they will grow in the way that's right for them. And yes. that's, that's what's so tricky about parenting is that we might have faith they grow, they'll grow, but we expect it's going to be the same way we grew. <laughs> and so we want to impose things on them or, or give them guide, a lot of guidance or you know expectations, et cetera. But they're going to have their own timeline and their own destination. I, I I may have been saved from that one a little bit, Heather, in, in being, um, you know, in the LGBTQ community. Uh, that was certainly not something my parents had in mind at all. Right. <laughs> so they apparently were not able to. I, I never had the fantasy I could make my kids turn out the way I imagined. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe yeah, that no was doubt. a benefit. <laughs> yeah, that's true. For sure. But it, but it is hard, especially with... Um, with things that that feel dangerous, you know, either with um, anyone we're holding space for. Our kids is a great example because we're so invested in their well-being. But uh, I, it may it may apply to anybody we're holding space for that we have to kind of have faith in their process. Yeah, and one of the biggest teachings in this work I keep telling people is is releasing the outcome. When I can let go of an expectation of your outcome, then I can begin to hold space for you. But when I'm trying to control your outcome because I think that's a better destination for you, then I'm hijacking space instead of holding it for you. Let's come right back to that after the blank after the the break. Sorry, because yeah. um, I think that's so <laughs> elemental. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter. I've been posting more on Instagram lately, so you can look for me there too. And to find Heather Plett, go to heatherplett.com and it's P-L-E-T-T.com. Back soon.
Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. What sets apart voiceamerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main voiceamerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Heather Plett, author of The Art of Holding Space, a practice of love, liberation, and leadership. And Heather, before the break, uh, we, we were just beginning to talk about what an important aspect of holding space, letting go of the outcome, is. Uh, and something that, for instance, people in my profession... Uh, sometimes struggle with a great deal. Um, I I kind of let go of the idea that I could determine people's outcome uh, actually before I ever started doing therapy because um, it seemed just absolutely true that I couldn't, <laughs> I wasn't going to be able to control it. But um, how do people begin to say, okay, I'm not in charge of what happens, but I can, but I can be here with you. Yeah. yeah it, it has to start with a fair bit of self work, like being, paying attention to yourself, what triggers you and what, why are you wanting to control the outcome? If you're a therapist, for example, and you, you know, you only, um, can recognize your value once you've actually helped a client. Well, then how are you defining help and what do they need to do to prove that you've helped them? And then it becomes about you and not about the client because you're trying to move them to somewhere that you expect them to get to so that it defines you. And so it's it's really a lot of self-reflection about, oh, okay, so why am I being triggered right now? 
is there maybe some trauma in my past that that I I can't let go? I, I need to have control of this situation. Is there what's the ego piece? What's my own shadow um, that gets in the way? Because we do uh, much more than we maybe realize. <laughs> Every interaction that we have is a personal interaction that we have to uh, that you know our ourselves show up our ego selves and and we have to be really intentional about with withdrawing or, or holding that back so that the other person can be in their own story um, and we don't want to we don't try to take control away from them and it feels really helpful often we we think we're given really great advice but it's <laughs> advice sure. that's coming from our stories and our ego and not necessarily what they're asking for or what they need you know there is of course a, a therapeutic concept countertransference that's a fancy word for that in a way your stuff has gotten mixed up mm -hmm. in how you're how you're being with that person but um i do think because many therapists have very active intelligence um you can trick yourself on that one <laughs> and yeah. not recognizing that you're actually responding emotionally yeah, and it, it's such a long, uh, it's really kind of a lifelong process, I think, because there are new things that come up all the time. Like when we think we've gotten quite good at this, letting go of the outcome, then all of a sudden we're in a new kind of situation or a new relationship that triggers us differently. And all of a sudden we're, it's bringing up some fear again, we're out of control or we're, or we're, you know, our ego or, or our self-esteem is involved. And so it's, it's really, um, it's commit, it's about being committed to a practice of it each day, checking in with yourself and noticing and bringing mindfulness and awareness to those moments where it's like, oh, wait a second, what I just offered that person is about me and not about them mm -hmm. and making those discernments. Of course, you know, this has been, to me, quite vivid, um, well, actually in the last four years, but particularly during uh, everyone where I am is basically, everyone I'm speaking with in my therapy practice is basically sheltering at home. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that isn't true everywhere, but it is here. And the amount of, we're all going through it. I, I can't pretend I'm not going through it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so it's really um, been an interesting challenge to acknowledge that and um, reinforce my own ways of going through challenging times and bring my best to other people's challenging times because we're all in different boats in this, you know, turbulent sea. Yeah. Yeah. I was. Um... Uh, several years ago, I was in Florida actually speaking at a conference on grief and trauma and uh, speaking to a lot of really beautiful people who worked in grief and trauma, especially with youth. And, and they were such good hearted people. And you know, the kind of people that are drawn to a conference like that. And, and I remember saying at some point, I said, maybe some of the best words that you can learn to say are, I'm at capacity. Mm. And I could feel the energy in the room change. And it was like, oh, my God, you know, you could see these people realizing, oh, wait, I don't know how to say that. Like, uh -uh. We're, we're giving and giving and supporting and supporting. And I don't actually know how to acknowledge when I'm when I've reached my capacity, because when you tip over into beyond your capacity, when you're overwhelmed, where when you're worn out, when you're exhausted, when you're trying to deal with a pandemic, for example, 
it's really easy to tip over into a space where it's you you can't really hold space in a healthy way because you haven't nurtured nurtured yourself yet you haven't really cared for your own needs so one of the first things you have to do is learn to recognize your own limitations and learn to speak on your own behalf and protect yourself and protect your own energy so that you have capacity to hold space for other people mm-hmm. For sure. And also, for me, it's been deeply important to learn as much as I can about the indicators Mm -hmm. uh, for when I'm at capacity and need to do something different. Um, You know, for instance, when I start getting impatient um, with other people's process, um, I'm not a hugely impatient person. So if I'm impatient at all, <laughs> it's a pretty good indicator. Yeah. Uh, or when I um, don't want to talk to my family anymore, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, there are just these, these things that make me aware or when I start to get anxious because um, honestly, I have not been a very anxious person since my wife died. Mm-hmm. It, it, it something changed in that process nothing to be scared about in the future i mean <laughs> the worst mm-hmm. has happened kind of thing so if i start feeling a lot of anxiety you know all those right. individual cues that i'm not quite uh my best self yeah exactly and and unfortunately if we're not good at identifying those cues that's when we're going to hurt other people because we're going to project that stuff onto other people we're going to externalize like if i'm feeling overwhelmed it must be somebody else's fault (laughs) and Mm -hmm. you know and and if i don't recognize what i need and and where my limits are and and really practice being present with myself then i can do damage to other people and and that's the important piece of being in relationship and i think it's especially right now in the middle of a pandemic i have three adult young adult daughters uh, who are all living in my house right now because their their university classes are all online and etc and and we can get into each other's space a bit when 24 (laughs) 7 we're all in the same house and we're pretty good at it but but it at the same time there are moments where we're just setting each other off because we've just been in too much of the same space and so knowing, fortunately, we're all kind of introverted and we all have our own bedrooms. And so we and, and <laughs> go we're to go, your corners. Well, we're we're kind of get we've gotten quite good at communicating. Look, I just need to go in my bedroom right now or I need to go for a walk or I, I this is what I need right now. And we're pretty respectful of, of each other. But yeah, that's especially challenging. <laughs> I'm impressed because um my my youngest who is um 27 has also been sheltering here and um you know she's matured a lot since college and it's it's gone quite well not perfectly of course because we're people but quite well wonderful it's been wonderful to have her here um but I don't know if the same would have been true when she was in college (laughs) (laughs) I can't guarantee that so we sort of skipped ahead to what we need to do to make sure we're well enough to hold space. But I wonder if you'd share the part of your book about what it actually is to hold space. Um, you know, what what we're actually giving someone yeah. when we're holding space. 
Yeah. Do you want me to read that section? That would be great. Yes. Okay, sure. This is one of the sections on uh, particularly on one of the elements of holding space. And so uh, if you read the book, there's, there's a, I've created a bowl shape and then I've got different elements about what it means to hold, hold space. And this one is on bearing witness. A person in liminal space can feel invisible as if they've dropped out of sight and no longer have value in the world. When they're in the middle of a period of grief, for example, or they're adapting to a disability that has changed the way they function in the world, they may not operate in the way that once gave them value and made people notice them. In those times, they need people to see them, honor them, and pay attention to what they're going through. <coughs> Holding space is about bearing witness. It's about showing up for a person we care about, even when they have nothing to offer us in return. It's about noticing the little things that make them who they are and showing up in a way that lets them know they are still seen, such as bringing them a cup of coffee with just the right amount of cream, showing up at the funeral of their parent, even though you didn't know the deceased, or listening to them go through a checklist of all of the things they have lost. Bearing witness is showing up without answers. It's listening without needing to change the narrative or the situation. It's hearing the things in a person's story that others overlook. It's letting them know they still have value, even in those moments when they are unable to do the things that once helped them assign value to themselves. We often underestimate the power of simply seeing and being seen. I once had a coaching client who would occasionally say, can you just sit and look at me for a moment? It just means so much to be truly seen by someone who has no judgment in their eyes. In my experience, there are various levels of being seen, but we can't assume that everyone is capable of all levels or has done the spiritual work required to be present at all depths. Most of us have only a few select people in our lives who can bear witness to the deepest, messiest, most spiritual parts of us. While other friends may hold space for portions of us, we may be reluctant to trust the whole of who we are to their container. To be truly seen by someone in, is to know they can look into your deepest soul without backing away, that they hold your soul with reverence and delight. I like that line. <laughs> they hold your soul with reverence and delight. Yeah. But that does bring up um, something that you, you do talk about and just seems so crucial to this, which is that holding space does to me seem to require that our own boundaries are in order that we won't let uh, the other person go beyond our personal boundaries um i remember a good friend of mine who's also a therapist um had a had a boundary about um yelling at her in therapy mm -hmm. and she once fired a client who did that even though she cared very much for the client, that was just over her particular line. I don't know if it would be mine or not, but how important do you think that is? Um, you know, it, it, it seems to me it is. What do you think, though? Yeah, absolutely. I, I talk a fair bit about boundaries in this work, actually, because I think unless I can understand... Um, what I what I will accept and what I won't accept, and and it's a learning and growing process. But I'm I'm gonna allow you. To, there's a a term I use uh, that's kind of 
it's not the, not what I say is the opposite of holding space, but it's what happens when we don't have those boundaries. Often we become a shock absorber instead of holding space. And that person is projecting their pain onto us and we're absorbing it like a shock absorber in a car and that does damage to us. And so if we don't develop some healthy sense of, you know what, I'm going to hold space for you. And I have lots of capacity perhaps to hold your anger, your grief, your whatever rage you need to process. But here's the line I draw. Once it become begins to feel abusive, I'm going to step away and you'll have to find other ways to process. You might be able to come back if that's the, I talk about kind of the social contract between you. Mm-hmm. Um, but there has to be those kinds of understandings. Otherwise, it's not really holding space. Then it's becoming... Um, a doormat or, you know, it's allowing this person to, to be abusive to you. That's not what I qualify as holding space. I feel as if that's very important because those of us that are drawn to holding space, you know, uh, I've always liked listening to people, you know, I've always wanted that kind of connection. Um, we can make that mistake pretty easily. You know, right. that it's all about just being present no matter what, and that'll all turn out. But uh, over my pretty long life now, I've realized, nope, that's not true. <laughs> yeah. had, to, had to figure out where my line, particular line is drawn. Yeah, there's a concept I write about. The whole second section of my book, and there's three sections. The second section is all about holding space for yourself, <clears throat> because that's what... I, I honestly believe is the most critical work so that you can have capacity to hold space for other people. And in that section, I've developed this um, um, concept that I refer to as psychic membranes. And it's really inspired by the membrane of a cell within your body. That If you look at the, the, the cell, it teaches us a lot of really great wisdom. The, the membrane um, you know, a really thin membrane, but it protects that cell. It it holds in what nourishes that cell and it's permeable. It's going to let in the nourishment and it allows the what's not of value to pass through that cell. And it has all these wonderful qualities, like it, a cell in your body knows when to become more rigid, not to let things in. When you develop a fever in your body, it's telling that cell, okay, get more rigid now. And it, it becomes, and that's when, why we get sick is because our cell membranes are, are responding to the virus in our body. And that's really, if we imagine ourselves in that kind of psychic memory, imagine we're inside kind of this bubble, we have to learn to practice. What do I, uh, what am I going to allow in? What does damage to me if I allow it in? And what do I need to re- remove from my life so that there's balance in my life and I'm healthy? It, it does, you know, I, I I do a bunch of couples therapy, not just individual, and that's so critical, uh, such a critical con- concept in relationship that if the two people are not working on themselves, it's it's the best work on yourself because you can't get out of it. Yeah. <laughs> and still and still have a workable relationship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and and I know that that at some point you had to leave a relation, a marriage, an important marriage that um, yeah. didn't, wasn't offering that, that couldn't, um, that both of you couldn't come together and having done your own work, bring your best to each other. I guess that's one way I could, yeah. I could think of it. <laughs> it's really, it was a growing awareness that um, 
within that marriage, my membranes were not healthy, that there was a boundary crossing, that there was damage being done because I, I, I couldn't hold myself in that way and wasn't being held in that way. And, and so we didn't really have capacity to hold, hold space for each other. And the healthiest thing was to remove myself and, and find other ways of being more healthy, really. Mm. Sometimes the price is high, but, but as you said, worth the price. Yes. <laughs> Time for our second break. We'll come back tomorrow after that. And, and meantime, listeners, you can go to my website, weatheringgrief.com, the Good Grief host page that has links to everything. And um, if you want to find Heather Plett and her book, you can either go to heatherplett.com or also the centerforholdingspace.com. Back after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent, inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I've been talking with Heather Plett the author of The Art of Holding Space, A Practice of Love, Liberation, and Leadership. And Heather, one thing I really wanted to make sure we talked about, um, kind of to, uh, to the side, but I learned so much about, uh, about myself in reading it, was um, the, the ways that we defend ourselves, you know, from, from, trauma attack um obviously fight flight or freeze is very familiar to me but i'd like you to talk about the fourth one because (laughs) i was like oh that's what i do (laughs) so um i'd love for you to just i think it might really uh help some people to hear you talk about that fourth one Yeah, that was such an eye-opener for me when I discovered that one several years ago. So there's been research in recent years, um, and particularly research in women, because what they found is a lot of the trauma research, uh, the earlier trauma research, focused more on men's response to trauma 
um, and I should say women and, and non-binary folks. And what they found is this concept that they call tend and befriend. And tend and befriend as a trauma response really looks like um, what we tend to do when there's a trauma in a community or something like that. We Our, our automatic instinct is to look for the most vulnerable people in the, in the room or in the situation and tend to those people. And those of us who are parents know that feeling of, Oh, I got to look after the kids and befriend. The other half of that is often in, in tending to the vulnerable in trying to protect them. We then befriend the source of the, the stress or the abuse uh, because it's in befriending those people that we, we kind of um, bring them, uh, you know, help to regulate them so that the situation's more calm so that the threat goes away but in doing that, we kind of lose ourselves because we're often having to um, sacrifice something for other people. And it's really quite, it was quite profound for me to recognize that. And I see myself doing that all the time now. And I just wrote a blog post not that long ago about this when I was in traffic and there was somebody behind me who was really honking because he wanted me to go faster and he was impatient at the light and stuff. And I just felt this really strong sense that, oh, I had to look after him. I had to get out of the way so he could get to where he needed to go. And I and I, I just had to pause for a moment. It's like, it's funny how quickly I responded that way and trying to look after his needs <laughs> so that the situation <laughs> felt more, uh, more safe for me. But that's what we do. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that's a huge. And I find especially a lot of people that are in this kind of work that do therapy, that do personal care work, we are the people who who have this trauma response uh, most mm -hmm. significantly i think it it was interesting to me because um for instance i've talked my my way out of a couple of near rape experiences mm. uh by going to this place i think you're talking yeah. about mm -hmm. and that uh, had um been something of a i realize now point of pride Mm. Uh, or yeah. point, you know, see how well that worked. Right. <laughs> but um, I'm not completely, I'm going to have to give it a lot more thought. What was the cost of that as yeah. a strategy? Uh, obviously, it did help me, but mm -hmm. did it also have a cost? Yeah. And the interesting thing is to pay attention after that happened, when that was your your response in that moment, um, what triggers that in you again? Like, what are the situations that, like, is that trauma that that became rooted in your body in those moments? And are you being triggered to that place again in future moments? And that's a sign that that, that maybe there's something that's not entirely just healthy about the way you you reacted. Because the thing it is, it is a survival skill. And those of us that are good at it, we do kind of sometimes pat ourselves on the back because we've survived and that's that's what and all not her and not are. you know those particular people in those couple of situations also were not harmed right yeah. uh, <laughs> so it's very it's very tempting but um i mean i've i've worked at worked about those things from other angles i don't feel like there, there's big residue but yeah. it was a very different way to look at it and uh, i appreciate that thank you well, and I think it's important to see that every one of those trauma responses 
is rooted in our capacity to survive and our skills. So none of those uh, trauma responses are things we should shame ourselves for or even question ourselves for having done them because that was our instinct to survive and our amygdala kicks in and we survive. And so it's giving yourself grace and self-compassion for that's what I needed to do in that moment. And, and now maybe years later, I still need to heal some of it. But in that moment, it was not the wrong, you know, I don't want to call it the wrong thing to do. I'm, I'm not sure I wouldn't choose it again. It's just that I won't think in the rest of my life, you know, that it's um, a completely different thing than just response, responding, you know, yeah. out of my particular psyche. There's, yeah. there's nothing better, worse, or indifferent about it. <laughs> you know, that's, that's what I think I learned. Yeah. Well, and it's noticing, like I say, when I was sitting in traffic and noticing my body respond to the man behind me honking and, and trying to get past me, that's when I can, I can bring self-reflection to that moment and think, oh, wait a second, I'm not actually doing anything wrong and he can wait his turn. <laughs> you know, I, I can stand up for my right in this moment. I don't have to become his, his you know, tend or look after him. So it, it's, it's that growing awareness of when is it an appropriate reaction and when is it just a triggered reaction? For sure. And of course, there are all these circumstances right now. Uh, it's so noticeable around COVID where uh, I actually you know, in holding my ground in whatever way, I actually feel some sense that that is a little dangerous sometimes. Um, you know, right. for instance, requesting that someone, you know, cover their nose with their mouth, mask or whatever it is. Yeah. I have asthma, so <laughs> that matters to me. Uh, I find I just, I just take a wide berth because it does feel as if there's some threat there. Yeah. Um, so that's been an interesting uh experience uh, much more visceral maybe than at other times um, yeah and i i, I have uh, one of my daughters is quite high risk because she has a trachea condition where her trachea is is um compromised and so i that i get triggered into the tendon befriend on her behalf like you mm -hmm. say I, if people are without masks or doing more risky behavior that's when i i feel the mother bear rising up in me to respond I'd love to invite you to read this third excerpt about holding space as a spiritual act. Sure. After years of doing this work, I am convinced that holding space is a spiritual act and that what holds it all together is something bigger than any of us. While we hold space, there is a greater essence <clears throat> that we can lean into, especially when we need courage, strength, and wisdom. I am intentionally not trying, not going to try to define this mystery for you. Your version of the mystery, and I use a capital M for mystery there, might be different <clears throat> from mine. It's something meant to be just outside our human reach and understanding. When we hold space, we do so in a way that invites mystery into the process. That means that you, as the space holder, open yourself to the spiritual and take cues from a source far larger than you. It means that you trust the person for whom you are holding space to also be held by the same source. You don't need a specific spiritual belief system to accommodate this mystical aspect element of holding space. If you're Muslim, it may be Allah you trust to work with you. 
If you are Hindu, you might invite Shiva, Kali, or Ganesha into the space. If you are agnostic or animist, you might simply believe that the earth or the universe or love is holding the space with you. If you are Christian or Jewish, call it God or Yahweh. If you are indigenous, call it creator, mother earth, animal spirit guides, or the ancestors. Whatever the case, the work deepens when you open yourself to mystery and acknowledge and invite a sense of the great unknown into the work. When you do open yourself to mystery, prepare for the unexpected. Prepare to be humbled and awed by what is beyond your control. I have witnessed some of the most magical things when holding space in this capacity. Sometimes, for example, animals will appear. Once after a shamanic womb healing ceremony at the edge of the ocean, our circle of women was visited by a dolphin, a manatee, a seal, and several birds. My friend Two Bears, an elder in the Choctaw Nation, was with us for the ceremony and said, of course, they want to be part of the healing energy in this space. I've had quite a few experiences like that. There, uh, one of my teachers, when, when uh, something would happen that felt like we were in the presence of mystery, would put his finger to his mouth. You know, it can't be described was the, yeah. <laughs> was yeah. the meaning. But if you've ever had that experience, it, it also can't be denied. Yes. And, and I, I really uh, have a deep gratitude for my friend, Two Bears, who I mentioned that in that story. She's been a longtime friend who helps me see that in those moments. And uh, she shows up in the last chapter of the book when I really tried to unpack um, what holding space is, you know, kind of what the ancient lineage of it. And she sees it as a as an ancient practice that has evolved, uh, that's always been with us. That's it's an indigenous practice, indigenous to all of us, really. That is uh, based, you know, rooted in our own spirituality, goes way back. And so, it's been a real blessing to be uh, in relationship with her and learning alongside her. Yes, I have some similar friends, and I was mentioning to you on the break that I was part of a Sundance for a long time, and when you talked about her describing uh, people in the kitchen eating for the people who are fasting, of course, I've experienced that, and it's so undeniable, you know. Right. It, it has never happened in my experience that someone is doing that, said, oh, I'm having watermelon for blank dancer and then the person comes out and they weren't wanting that yeah. <laughs> i've yeah. never had that experience but it's sometimes hard to talk about because we live in a very logical world and those are don't they don't fit the logical paradigm yeah and, and i and i've had some that resist that portion of my book because they want to see it just as a you know to, they want to take the spiritual out of the practice and and i have in the past tried to write about it without that in fact the mystery was the last part that evolved when i was defining the bowl and it just didn't feel true for me it just felt like no there's something missing there needs to be that um allowing that in and i like i say in the that portion i don't try to define it i just witness that it shows up i i guess i would say at this very ending what do we need more than feeling that, that we're all part of some kind of fabric that's beyond 
us that's beyond right. our our little selves yeah. <laughs> i know i'm depending on that a lot these days heather thanks so much for being here there's so much more in your book i got so much out of it i really uh oh it was i felt held reading it and so i i thank you for that thank you i really appreciate this opportunity it's been a pleasure it really has next week i'll have liz tishner the author of the night lake a young priest maps the topography of grief. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.